This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. You're listening to Valley Football First and Goal, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference on the lineupmedia.fm network. Now, your host, Kelly Burke. Back with another edition of the MVFC First and Gold podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Burke, and today's guest really needs no introduction. Don Patterson spent 11 successful seasons as head coach of Western Illinois, but perhaps is better known for his 20-year run at Iowa as an assistant coach under the legendary Hayden Fry. Coach P, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to join me today in person. It's my pleasure, Kelly. I'm glad to be here. You were coming up on two years in January, and after 37 seasons and 425 wins, you retired from coaching. How did you know it was time? You know, one thing that comes to mind, I was driving home late one night and I heard on the radio, if you want to shorten your life expectancy, go long periods of time with sleep deprivation. And I'd missed a lot of sleep for a lot of years. And, and we'd had a good season at UConn. We were bowl eligible in my second year there. And it just seemed like a good time to, to bow out. I'd seen so many good coaches end on a negative note. And I'd always made up my mind I didn't want to go that route. I'd prefer to go the Barry Alvarez route. Uh, and I, I didn't finish up with the Rose Bowl season, but I did finish up with the bowl season at UConn. When speaking of great coaches and seasons, Hayden Fry left North Texas and went to Iowa. And you followed him, and that began a memorable 20-year run with the Hawkeyes. What did you learn from Coach Fry and being a part of his staff? You know, I learned so much from Coach Fry. The one thing I learned above and beyond anything else is be sure that your players know that you care about them. Don't be afraid to tell them that you love them because you do. Uh, I've always said I've always had one daughter and a hundred sons. And I, truth is I love the daughter a little bit more than those hundred sons on any given year. But I also did love those sons. And, um, and the players, if they know that you care about them, then they'll do anything in the world to support what you want them to do. You know, they'll run through a wall for you if you treat them the right way. And Coach Fry always did that. I also learned a lot about leadership at West Point. I think that helped me a lot. Positive leadership is really what it's all about. And I've always said, uh, you aspire to be a great coach and it's difficult to do, but in rare cases, you can achieve that feeling. And it's really this, this simple, Kelly. Uh, being a great coach means you have inspired your players to play better than what they could even imagine. And that's your goal. It's very difficult to achieve, but every now and then you feel like you get it done. Do you still keep in touch with coach and members of that staff? Yes, I do. I saw Coach Fry just a month ago down in North Texas. They had honored him. Um, all six of his North Texas teams were invited back. There were about 100 players that were back for a banquet on Friday night. And then, of course, halftime during the football game. And the football team even came through. They won the game on the last play of the game. So it was an exciting weekend for Coach Fry to be able to get reconnected with those old players at North Texas. At Iowa, you were a part of 14 bowl games and three Rose Bowls, including a Rose Bowl berth in just your third season in Iowa City. Looking back, what stands out about that run and those games? Well, I'm proud to say, Kelly, that's still the fastest turnaround in the history of the Big Ten. Uh, when we first came to Iowa, the Big Ten was known as the Big Two and the Little Eight, and I think we know who the Big Two were. Purdue really was the third team at that time in the league, uh, and there were a lot of other teams that were just okay. So it was 
not that difficult to move our way into the first division, but the challenge, of course, was to find a way to knock off the big two. And finally in 81, I say finally, it was year three. I think we were probably picked probably seventh in the league maybe that year. And we actually won at Michigan nine to seven in a close game. We did not play Ohio State that year. Ohio State complained. We ended up as, a, as ties, but they'd been to the Rose Bowl uh, any number of times since Iowa. So that made it our turn to go. And it was very important for us. In 1983, two years later, we did play Ohio State and we beat them on that day too. So we wanted to let them know it's not just all about the big two anymore. There are other teams that can compete for championships too. Do you still talk to your former players? All the time, all the time. It's, it's so gratifying. I remember the day I announced my retirement, Kelly, I, I don't know, I, I lose track of how many players contacted me that day. Dana and Hughes was certainly one of them. <laughs> And it was so gratifying to hear from all these players over all these 37 years. And I told my wife then, I said, there are times when I wondered if it was all worth it, all the sacrifice that you go through as a, as a football coach. Uh, but on that day, I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt it was worth it. And the reason I say that is the players were able to tell me, coach, you made a difference in my life. And then and only then do you realize for sure it's all been worthwhile. You were the offensive coordinator when a guy named Bo Pelini was the grad assistant at Iowa. What kind of potential did you see in Bo as a coach even back then? We had recruited Bo out of high school. He was from Youngstown, just like the Stoops boys were. And, and um, Bo gave us consideration, but still ended up in Columbus. That's not too surprising if you're from Youngstown. And if Ohio State wants you, then you're probably gonna end up there. And um, I just saw in, in Bo, first off, the, the, the mindset around Youngstown, it's very much a blue collar town. It's very much a, a community that loves the game of football. And I know the Penguins have great support uh, in every year, regardless of the one loss record, but they probably like them a little better when the record's right. <laughs> but, uh, but Bo certainly was, a, he was kind of a football junkie, I think you could say, you know, he grew up with the game and loved the game. And, and he certainly did a good job for us in the short time uh, he was at Iowa. And I'm not surprised that he's gone on to accomplish great things as a head coach. I'm told you and the staff used to give players pregame tests and that they actually had to answer in front of the entire team. Yes. That's something Coach Fry instituted. And the, the effect it had was really worthwhile. I, you can imagine if you're a young player especially, you're a little bit nervous about answering a question that's very specific to the game for what your responsibilities are and being able to do it in front of the team. And of course, you have no idea what the question is going to be. Uh, I shouldn't say you have no idea. You've taken the written exam. If you've done well with the exam, then you should feel comfortable that you can answer the question. But uh, it's still a lot of pressure on you to, to perform at that moment in front of your teammates. And the effect it has, though, Kelly, when every coach gets up and asks his players questions, as time goes on over that 10 or 15 minute period, it becomes obvious to all the players on a cumulative basis, we are ready to play this football game. We are prepared mentally and physically to play. And that gives you, of course, a better chance once the game actually starts. Is that something you continued when you were head coach at Western Illinois? Absolutely. We always did that. We always had a mental check. It was going to be part of that exam. Uh, Dana would probably complain that my exams were a little too uh, extensive. Uh, but I always like to say, I'm going to prepare you for all possibilities that happen in the game. And then there are no surprises on game day. So the exams did get a little bit long at times, but the players ne never seemed to complain directly to me. I think they probably complained among themselves a little bit. 
Danon Hughes, former Hawkeyes wide receiver turned Valley football analyst, had high praise for you and the staff for allowing him to do his touchdown celebration dances. Well, one of my favorite frame pictures in my house is a shot of Danon Hughes. Uh, he's in the end zone. He is swinging an imaginary bat, and I'm pretty sure it was hit out of the park. Uh, he was a great baseball player, as you know, and, and what, what would be more proper for him to celebrate in the end zone with a home run swing? As you just alluded to, Danon was a two-sport athlete in college, and that's something he's not only very proud of, but thankful that you and Coach Fry and the rest of the staff allowed him to do. You know, in this day and age of specialization in high school, what concerns you most about that trend, and why do you feel like it's important to be well-rounded as a high school athlete? I think it is unfortunate that a lot of coaches nowadays discourage young uh, student athletes from participating in more than one sport. I think it's pretty easy to get, I think it's more easy to get burned out on a, on a specific sport if that's really all that you do with your free time. I think it's healthy to go from one season to the next and play at least a second if not a third sport. And uh, to be able to do it in college is pretty amazing. You got to be a rare athlete to achieve that, but Dana was that kind of athlete. And, and uh, if he's been telling you all these years, Kelly, that he really was a good player, he wasn't lying to you, he really was. You held nearly every assistant coaching position throughout your career. What is your favorite position group to coach and why? I think I would have to say being an offensive coordinator and also being in charge of both quarterbacks and receivers. Now that's a lot because you've got, you've got of course, quarterbacks and receivers are two entirely different positions and then to coordinate the offense at the same time is difficult. You just have to be one that can operate without a whole lot of sleep. Uh, it's a very time intensive job and I used to like to explain it this way. At the end of a game, you have 165 hours on average to get ready for the next game. Most of those hours need to be spent in waking mode. Uh, my goal on Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night was to get four hours sleep. And I was able to function pretty well with that. People always ask me, aren't you really nervous the night before the game? And the answer is, no, I'm exhausted. So I always get a great night's sleep on Friday night and then I'm ready to go on Saturday. So how much sleep are you getting now that you're retired from coaching? And what's the transition been like getting more than four hours of sleep a night? I've always been a very much a night person. I always felt some people don't do their, their best at night, but I've always felt that that was my best time in terms of game planning and, and working. And uh, even now, I get probably six and a half hours sleep, I guess. It's just hard for me to sleep much longer than that. That's enough for me, I think. Your body is so accustomed to your coaching days. Yeah, but I did learn I want to get a lot more than four or five because that's simply not enough. After Coach Fry announced his retirement, you took the head coaching job at Western Illinois where you were for 11 seasons. You know, what was so special about Macomb and your three NCAA postseason bursts and that number one ranking you achieved? You know, the thing that comes to mind for me first, I remember when uh, the associate AD who was on that selection committee, when he, con when he contacted me, he said, Coach, we know how much money you've been paid at Iowa, and we're not sure we can afford you. We'd love to consider you as our coach, but we're not sure that we can meet your salary demands. And I said, for me, it never has been about money. And just so you know, if you want me to be your coach, I'll take exactly what the last guy made. Whatever you played Randy Ball, that's, that's okay. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it for the love of the game. And that's what I did. I took the same exact salary that Randy had, and I will admit they gave me a few raises through the years. Uh, which I was always grateful for, but it wasn't necessary. It never has been about the money. In terms of satisfaction, it's so meaningful. As you know, uh, 
Western Illinois has some disadvantages in recruiting. It's in rural, the rural western part of the state. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a distance to go to Chicago. It's easier for a Chicagoland kid to go to Illinois State as, as an example, or to Northern, or any number of other schools. Uh, so to be able to overcome a few disadvantages in recruiting, I think was meaningful. Uh, the thing we had in our favor, we had a good tradition of winning, you know, thanks to Bruce Craddock uh, for all the success he had, and Randy Ball, both those guys. And it was very, very meaningful to actually, it's still in the history of the school, the only time we've been number one ranked at any one time in a season. And wouldn't you know it, the week we achieved number one status, our next road game was on the road at LSU. And uh, we actually played them a good game. We didn't beat them, but we gave them a scare. The game was very much in doubt through three quarters. And um, I think one reason we played so well is we weren't just representing Western Illinois. We were really representing all of 1AA football. And um, after the game, Nick Saban said, we will not be hit any harder all season than what we were hit tonight. I thought, what a wonderful compliment to, to pay our team. And later that year, our first playoff game was at Montana. And of course, Montana is known as a very difficult place to play, but I would have to say it's a little bit easier to play there than to play in Death Valley. I could see that, 100,000 fans in Death Valley. I've heard it's one of the loudest stadiums out there. It is a very difficult place to play. And, and oh, by the way, that year, um, LSU did win the national championship that year, so. Well, that brings me to my next question. You've coached at both the FCS and FBS levels. What do you see as the biggest differences? I think the only real difference, the first difference that comes to mind for me is, is depth. You know, the backup players in the FCS are not as good as they typically are in the FBS. The starters oftentimes are as good, uh, but it's hard to, hard to establish great depth. You know, you've just got the scholarship limitation that, that works against you a little bit in terms of having great depth. This season, one of your former players, Mike Cyphers. That always brings a smile to my face to think about Mike. Obviously a standout NFL and Chargers punter for a number of years. And he was inducted this fall into the Western Illinois Hall of Fame. And you were there. How meaningful was it to be there for his induction? And also just, just to see what he has made of his life now being a dad to four kids. Yeah, wonderful family man. Uh, Mike was an outstanding punter. A lot of people aren't aware of this. Mike's average his senior year was 48.0. The record in the history of the NCAA, I should say the FBS record, is 49.8. It's held actually by someone from Waterloo, Iowa that played for us, a punter by the name of Reggie Roby. And uh, Mike's senior year, I asked uh, Jason Kaufman, our sports information director, I said, do me a favor and go back and figure, figure Mike's average when we were on our side of the 50. And he came back and he said, Coach, you averaged 52.0. And I said, that's what I thought. Uh, what you're not aware of, Jason, is that Reggie Roby did not pooch punt. He always had a long field to punt. Uh, and that, of course, gives you a chance to have a better average. And Jason's response was, well, then Mike should get credit for being the best punter in the history of college football. And I said, well, the only problem with that is we only punted Mike's senior year. We punted 53 times in 13 games. And if you eliminated the pooch punts, he wouldn't have enough punts to qualify for the NCAA record. Uh, but the fact that he was one of the best punters in the NFL speaks for itself. I know after one particular playoff game against the Indianapolis Colts, uh, Peyton Manning said after the game, uh, we were beaten tonight primarily because of Mike Cyphers. What a great, a great compliment to an, a punter on any level. You've had a chance to meet and spend some time with current Western Illinois head coach Charlie Fisher. What were your impressions of him and his staff? I think he's very definitely the right man for the job. 
Uh, Charlie's very much a people person. We talked earlier about being sure that your players understand that you care about them. Charlie's connected with the players on that level. I'm excited to see what they might do in the playoffs. I, I'm in a little a little premature to say they're in the playoffs, but I think they'll certainly have a chance to be in the playoffs. And who knows, maybe they'll make a playoff run. Uh, and maybe they'll be able to, to get to that championship game, which we were never quite able to get to. I know you've heard stories about the, the infamous rematch with Western Kentucky, 31 to 28. And the last play of the game was a 61 yard field goal attempt by Mike Cyphers that missed by about a yard. Uh, and then two weeks later, 13 days later, Western Kentucky won the national title. I've always felt if we were on opposite sides of the bracket, we would have probably been playing for the national title that year. That's one of our best teams. How closely have you followed Western Illinois season this year? Well, since we've been back, I, we saw uh, a game a year ago and we saw a game this year. Uh, and I've been back for spring ball nice. also. So I, I'm fairly well connected with the players. I'll, one quick story that's pretty interesting. Jalen Ackland is a young man you're familiar with. And after that, that homecoming loss to South Dakota, as I recall, I asked uh, the quarterback, I said, can you point out Jalen Ackland to me? And I, he did, and I went over to Jalen, and I said, Jalen, I'm Coach Patterson, I used to coach here, uh, and I just want to congratulate you on playing a great game. You might recall Kelly had 17 catches that day, and some of them were amazing. They were highlight reel catches. And he, he, um, he said, thank you, Coach, I appreciate it, but you've probably forgotten this. You had a conversation with me when you were at the University of Buffalo, and you told me that you weren't going to recruit me because I'm in rural southeast Missouri, but you also told me, don't let anybody tell you, Jalen, that you cannot play Division I football because you can. And he said, that meant the world to me that you told me that four years ago. And it's one reason I'm playing well today is because I had confidence, in part because you gave me confidence. And that was really meaningful for me to hear that. It was not that difficult to offer him some words of encouragement because he looked that good on the tape. And he was from rural Missouri, but he could still play. And he, he was a state champion hurdler too. So it's kind of hard to overlook that kind of talent sometimes. And here he is coming into this week. I think he only needs 25 yards to break the Western Illinois school record. Well, it couldn't happen to a nicer young man. He's kind of played in the shadows of other players yeah, uh, in the early years. Yeah, because yeah. they've had such a good receiving core. Yeah. So I'm really happy for Jalen that he's had a great senior year. You were diagnosed with cancer in 2008. How difficult a time was that to navigate? And how did it test your resolve? Uh, good question, Kelly. Uh, this particular cancer, tonsillar cancer, of course you have great health care at the University of Iowa. And they told me then, they said, Coach, we're not going to let you die, but this treatment's almost going to kill you. And they weren't lying. It was a very difficult treatment. I lost about 60 pounds, but I needed to lose some, some weight, so that was okay. I would want to say this. Uh, I'm so grateful to my wife that I didn't have to go through this by myself because I would feel badly for anyone that had to do it alone. I didn't have to. and and I had so much support from my wife and my daughter and from players too and old friends and coaching and outside of coaching for that matter. And um, the thing that, that hit me is, uh, you know, when you finish the treatments, you have to wait 90 days to get a PET scan. And until then, you really don't know if you're out of the woods or not. And I was able, as I thought about it, there was a wonderful movie at the time called The Bucket List. And you've probably seen the movie. I was able to say to my wife and daughter as we were anticipating this test, I said, you know, if we get bad news, I'm okay with it because I've really led a great life. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't want to die, but if my days are numbered, I'm okay with that because it's been fun uh, every step of the way and I have no regrets and it's meaningful that you can uh, wind down your life with no regrets and I've, I've been able to do that and 
with a little bit of luck, I'll be around for another 20 years, but can't count on it, of course. Someone told me that you are a huge Neil Diamond fan. You know, what is your favorite song, and how did that love of Neil Diamond come to be? I would probably pick Sweet Caroline, I guess. It all started when you go into treatment, um, you know, they, the radiation, they have to fix you on a table, and uh, you can't move, not even an inch, so you're actually strapped down to this table for the radiation equipment to do their job, and they do try to make it um, more relaxing, so they play music, and the first day they asked me, what kind of music? I said, easy listening, Any, anything will do. And they said, no, be specific. I said, okay, do you have Neil Diamond? And they said, yes, we do. So we listened to Neil Diamond in day one. And then the next 34 treatments were all that same CD from Neil Diamond. We would start it in a different place every day, which helped, but it gives you an idea that I really did appreciate his music. And then the rest of that story, Kelly, I hope we have time to tell it. Uh, my daughter got it in her head. Wouldn't it be neat if my dad could meet Neil Diamond? So she had written to Neil and got to know his traveling road manager very well. And she told him, uh, told Brooke, she said, uh, Neil appreciates your father's story, but Neil doesn't meet people before concerts. And um, that year that we were waiting on that PET scan, uh, Brooke said, I have an idea. Let's have a non-traditional Christmas. Let's go to Las Vegas. And Neil Diamond is one night only in Vegas on January 2nd. And I said, well, that's easy for you to say because I'm gonna have to pay for the trip. <laughs> and we did. Uh, we met Coach Fry and Shirley at the concert, and here's the rest of the story, Kelly. Two days before the concert, um, the road manager called up, Lauren called up and said, you're not gonna believe this, but Neil wants to meet your dad. So here we are backstage to meet Neil Diamond, and the, the most incredible thing of, the, of all of that, there was a woman backstage that came over, she was immaculately dressed, she had a couple of attendants with her, she came over and she said, excuse me, are you the Pattersons? And I said, yes ma'am, we are. And she said, I've been wanting to meet you because I had throat cancer myself and I'm still doing okay. I didn't know who it was for sure, but I, I suspected I knew, and I was right. It was Neil Diamond's mother. Rose was 90 years old at the time. Uh, I think she's still alive, uh, but just a wonderful, wonderful uh, person. And it was so neat to see Neil Diamond in concert with his mom in attendance because he announced to the crowd, it means a lot to me tonight because my mom's here. How are you enjoying retired life? I'm staying busy, I'm doing analytical stuff. Um, I'm doing a lot of analytical stuff for Iowa and for Kansas State and for Arkansas. Those are friends in, in high places at all three schools. I enjoy that a lot. Um, I'm also doing a, a radio show on Mondays about Hawkeye football, which I enjoy a lot. I work maybe one day a week at a golf course. I'll do anything for free golf. Uh, and I do have responsibility sometimes for the grand dogs. If my, if my daughter's out of town, I'm the one that gets to let the dogs out. What type of dogs? Schnauzers. We always had schnauzers. She has two schnauzers now, and, um, and they're wonderful dogs. Um, my wife grew up with a schnauzer when she was a kid even, so there's a family history of schnauzers. That's awesome. How's your golf game? I'm respectable. Yeah. If I can play bogey golf, I'm doing pretty well. Does your daughter live nearby? She's moved to Iowa City, and her husband is also uh, born and raised in Iowa City, so <laughs> they've known each other. He's a huge Hawkeye fan, so... He really thinks he's hit it out the park. What are the odds that, that his father-in-law could be a Hawkeye coach? Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is important to know or you'd like to share? The only thing that comes to mind, I guess, is just, is just lifetime philosophy. Um, the thing I appreciated about Coach Fry, he always had time for other people. And, and that really um, struck me the right way. And I ran across, it's a quote from a, a French writer 
and I'll just paraphrase what it says. It goes something like this. I expect to pass this way but once. Any good that I can do, let me not defer or neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. And that's really been my philosophy on life. If you have a chance to be pleasant to someone else, how hard is that? It's not hard at all. And it's amazing what you can accomplish if you're just simply, uh, simply nice to people. You always seem to get back more than you give, I think. And I guess that philosophy has been very helpful to me in my coaching career. Does everyone still call you coach? Coach P, typically, or I think the players behind my back, Dana would be one of those guys. He'd probably call me Donnie P. That's what the players used to call me behind my back. They'd call me Coach P to my face, but Donnie P behind my back. Even now, my wife sometimes calls me Donnie P. Coach P, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'm so glad we got a chance to meet in person. Kelly, it's, it's been a thrill to me. Uh, to meet you and I appreciate your time and thank you for doing this interview. I, I greatly appreciate it. Tune in next week for another episode of Valley Football's First and Goal with Kelly Bird, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference, only on the lineupmedia.fm network. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. This podcast was a presentation of lightupmedia.fm.